This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic In the margin of a book. A chance encounter in an airport leads to a reunion of college friends, and a flight delay leads to an airport lounge confession of the secrets behind a rise to power. Hailed as Highsmithian, Antoine Wilson's mouth-to-mouth is a look at the stakes involved in saving another person's life. I recently spoke with Antoine Wilson about his new novel. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. I read in one of your interviews, you described a short story that took place in the span of one elevator ride. So I'm laughing a bit when I ask this, but do you have an elevator speech for your novel, Mouth to Mouth? <laughs> That's not a short story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, an escalator. It's an es- it's a, oh, a no- I got that wrong. Okay. It's Yeah, it's Nicholson Baker's um, book, The Mezzanine. Yeah, and the whole thing, um, the whole thing takes place on that. On, a, on an escalator ride with a, with a lot of flashbacks. Um, do I have an elevator pitch for this book? Two college acquaintances bump into each other at JFK Airport, 20 years since they've seen each other. And one of them is now a successful art dealer. And the other one is our narrator. And he's a maybe not quite as successful novelist. And the successful art dealer invites the novelist up to the first class lounge and then kind of unspools for him the story of his rise beginning with shortly after college, his rescue and resuscitation of a a drowning man on the beach in Santa Monica, a man who's, who turns out to be sort of inextricably tangled with his fate. And so he's kind of making a, it's an impromptu confession, but what he's confessing, I don't think I want to spoil here. So we have this story that begins with this unnamed narrator and, mm-hmm. it, and it shifts from, you know, maybe is it would it be like third person limited, I suppose, because the story is being retold as the narrator recalls it told to him. So it's not necessarily a lens, but perhaps a mirror. Does that make this a telling by an unreliable, unreliable narrator? Right. So there are <laughs> there are few layers. I mean, I, it's funny. I I thought about this because people have asked me about the structure of the book and it it, it it's sort of. I think reading it page by page, hopefully it doesn't come off as overly complicated. But when you take a step back, it's pretty complex. I ended up with this structure because it's what felt most natural to the storytelling. But yeah, so there are sections in dialogue where Jeff Cook, who is the art dealer, is talking to our narrator and telling him essentially a story. And then, but once he gets rolling, there's often a chapter break and then his story is depicted in, yeah, a close third person narration, something that the the writer narrator has cooked up for the reader. And, you know, we're really, I think, used to that shift in film, you know, where somebody will say, you know, I, I, I pulled up at the house and then, you know, and then meanwhile, the story just cuts to somebody pulling up at the house and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a, maybe a filmic technique. I wanted to talk to you about, you know, that complexity that you have layered in. And this is probably more of a question about craft because the book weaves between, you know, past and present, between present and recalled past. Talk to me about crafting each storyline and how you ultimately wove them together. Or did you write this kind of as a through line? I wish. (laughs) I wish I'd written it as a through line, right? 
Yeah, I wrote it in nine months. First word to last word. No, that's not how it happened. Like so many things, you know, you don't necessarily want to know how these things are made. The illusion of total authority that's on the page uh, of the published book is the product of a lot of covering my tracks. You know, it's like painting a room, painting the floor of a room, you know, and you better finish it as you slip out the door rather than pinning yourself into a corner. But uh, with this specific book, the idea of somebody rescuing somebody else is something that I've been working with and playing with for years. And I could never find the right form for it. I had the idea that somebody was going to save somebody from drowning. And then one of them, either the rescuer or the rescued person, was going to turn out to be unhinged in some way. And... Oh, I tried many, many different drafts. And it, the inspiration for this came back in uh, 97, maybe. I was in Seattle with some friends and we were down by the water and I prevented someone from walking in front of a train accidentally. He had his headphones on, he was air drumming and he was about to walk right in front of a full-on train. And I prevented that from happening and he said, you know, he just looked at me. He's, oh my God, you saved my life. Train is going by, and he's like, oh, I'm gonna buy you a big steak dinner. He really said this. And then the the train, you know, kept going by. And then once the train was gone by, he just kept walking. So, like, you know, my friends made fun of me for years. Like, where's your steak dinner, <laughs> Antoine? So somehow, you know, that stuck in my head is one of these things like, what do you owe somebody who, who saved your life? Because it's comical that this guy said he was going to buy me a steak dinner and that I never got it on top of that. So the life-saving portion is one. And then as I developed that part, I really came to the conclusion that I wanted Jeff to save somebody of uh, questionable moral character. And so I played with, you know, as corporate raider stuff and bad lawyer or whatever. And it was all fairly... I don't know, it was fine. It just didn't excite me. And then I sort of stumbled across the idea of making him an art dealer, uh, which actually back in the 90s as well, I worked for a, a fine art appraiser in Beverly Hills. So I was up to my ears in that world and I got to see it firsthand. I've always wanted to write more about it. I had written about it in a short story. So those two things that had been circling since the 90s came together. You know, in the beginning, I found it odd that Jeff was remembering so many of the details so clearly, like when he remembered the name of the woman behind the coffee counter, Molly. It's amazing what the mind retains. And I I wondered if you must have been thinking that too, because like on on page 79 in my copy of the, the early copy, you wrote from the narrator, quote, I envied his faith in language and memory. From him, there seemed to be no distance between what he was recounting and what had happened. So how do you as a writer balance the, the need for details with the maybe the, the reader's ability to just accept them at, you know, this is what happened and you should trust that it happened all this clearly? Yeah. Um, the thing about Molly behind the counter To me, that has to do with, I don't think I have a particularly good memory. And I have friends who, you know, have memories that are like steel traps. But then I will remember some random detail and mention it to somebody, you know, a 
somebody who was there at the time. Oh my God, you have an incredible memory. Why would you remember the name of the woman behind the counter or, <laughs> you know, or X, Y, Z. And so that's sort of a comment on that in that moment. It's not that Jeff has a memory that can remember everything. It's that, you know, why has he retained this barista's name all these years? So he's kind of commenting on it. Uh, in terms of Jeff's faith in language, as he tells the story, that's um, more of a comment coming from a writer towards somebody who's not a writer. Mm. So he's he's just kind of amazed at Jeff's confidence in what he's saying and his lack of sort of acknowledging that there's contingency in everything, every utterance, right? And then in terms of detail, I think if the whole book were written in direct dialogue, that question would probably really come to the forefront. But by slipping into that close third, there's there's a bit of the sense of the writer filling in some of the details or this is what I got from Jeff or maybe even subconsciously, you just you don't necessarily think about the level of detail. Yeah, that's very true. I want to talk about location because the novel is set in one location in, in JFK. But mm. other locations are recalled and described through memory. And, you know, I mentioned that short story on the escalator ride earlier. So talk to me about this idea that both, you know, the difficulties and the positives of framing a novel within such a tight space. Huh. Or feel free to say that it's a dumb question and we'll move on. <laughs> it's not a dumb, it's not a dumb, it's not a dumb question. I'm just, it's just causing me to think about why, why I, why I would do such a thing. Um, one of the things that I, that really uh, attracted me to this idea of having the two of them, like, you know, literally sitting across from each other with, you know, a, a bathroom break is the only exception is the sense of intimacy, um, that's built into the storytelling from uh, Jeff talking to the narrator. So it's almost like they're in this cocoon and they're in this special rarefied place. They're in the first class lounge, which really speaks to the difference between them in terms of their socioeconomic status as well. Part of the sort of vibey influence on the book is, you know, we sort of, um, as we age, as we approach middle age, we sometimes take a look around and it's like, oh, some, some people have found themselves very comfortable and others are still grinding it out. And um, the difference between the two is always interesting in terms of how connected that is to one sticking with one's ideals, which I think is central to the book. I found it fascinating, you know, the whole airport setting, because, you know, that one bathroom break that you mentioned, the narrator, he remarks something about how the accommodations are much more humane. And, and it is at an airport when you are flying that the, the class differences are, are clear cut. They are labeled first class, second class or business yeah. class or coach or whatever. So I did find that that kind of the representation of the larger world um, in an airport really fascinating. Oh, also, I love any book that uses the word marginalia, so thank you for making me smile on page 98. Anytime. <laughs> okay, so the narrator finds that whenever Jeff uses the phrase, quote, no planning or forethought, it's a little suspect. So, mm -hmm. You know, so, but when Jeff first invites the narrator to have a drink with him in the first class lounge, he doesn't know he's a writer at that point. Are we to believe that there was like no planning and forethought involved in that? Like the outcome was not planned. He just really wanted to maybe 
unload, not with a string attach? Yeah, uh, essentially. I mean, I think this really depends on how you read the book and how you read Jeff. And I like to leave these things slightly open for the reader. Jeff's a pretty slippery character. And I like to um, let the reader kind of decide some of this stuff. For my part, my opinion, although I'm the one person in the world who cannot be a reader of this book, I think that it begins somewhat innocently with Jeff sort of saying, oh my God, you know, like, oh, it's been decades. Yeah, come have a drink, you know, let's go upstairs and catch up, even though they don't have that much of a connection. It, it throws Jeff into the past, which is what sets him talking. And in my view, at least at the beginning, he's just progressing without so much of an agenda, but fairly soon he develops one. So the book presents complicated questions about near-death experiences and even the implications of saving someone else's life. You know, how, how do you balance altruism with egotism? This is a fascinating question. My father was an orthopedic surgeon, and I considered going to medical school. And I worked on uh, the ambulance at UCLA. And so I've intersected with a lot of this, um, for lack of a better term, this sort of rescuer, rescued relationship. And I don't, I guess I don't think about altruism that much as part of the equation. In this book, at least, Jeff doesn't really have to, well, I suppose he takes a pretty big risk by getting into the water to pull this body out. Uh, he worries that, you know, if this guy's just passed out, maybe he'll grab him and pull him down, right? As, as drowning people are said to do. But I, I wouldn't say there's, it's too much of a stretch in terms of him being altruistic. Jeff mentions that Francis, one of the characters, is haunted, if you will, by the idea that the genius of everything in his head is going to vanish when he dies. And after mm. Jeff tells his story to his classmate from UCLA, it's suggested that that story is no longer in his head and susceptible to his mortality. Are you haunted at all by this idea of, of what is lost by death? Of course. One impetus for me in writing, and this goes way back and is the reason that I'm a writer. If I weren't publishing books or whatever, I would still be writing in a journal just to stay sane, is that I have to like offload the accumulated subjectivity that's come you know, into my head from being in the world. And I have to just get it out in words on paper. So to some extent, it's almost like a shunt, right? I've got to drain this swollen head with all these, these things that have gone into it. So I do think about the way that, uh, yeah, death would probably, it would, it, would, it would put a stop to that process. For sure. There's a, a word called sonder, I think it's called, which is this recognition that everyone else is living as complex an existence as you are. So I find some of these questions just overwhelming, you know, when I think about people who, who die and go away and, and they have all this experience that is um, maybe never makes it out into the world. Your book is titled Mouth to Mouth, which can be 
um, understood as, you know, the saving of, of one's life through mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But then throughout the book, you use words like confession and supplication and, and benediction. And, and there is this story going from, you know, mouth-to-mouth. It's a, it's a story being retold. Is there a, is there a religion of sorts in, in that process? Not, I don't see it necessarily. I mean, I suppose there are religious structures, right? Yeah, the, the, the confession and the, the sense that one might walk away lighter having offloaded something, um, a story to somebody else, not carrying that burden anymore, um, which some would say is related to the function of, of confession uh, in religion. I think confession also has the function of, to some extent, it's like therapy, having to put your experience into words, and, and then it gives you something to reflect back on yourself as opposed to maybe it just stays, you know, as a hazy cloud in your head or a series of pictures. Putting it into words makes you come face to face with it. But a, a confession, a confessor or a therapist or, or whatnot, they are, they're bound by a seal. And he just granted carte blanche to this writer to do with it what he will. Yeah, and the writer says he's not going to write it. But he does. And, <laughs> and I, you know, then we, we maybe get into spoiler territory if we talk about that too much. But it's um, that may be one moment when the writer himself is unreliable. So I've seen this novel, I've seen Mouth to Mouth described as high Smithian, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley meets something else, meets something else, and I can't recall what they are. Um, do you think this is a thriller or a literary thriller? How would you classify this book? Yeah, I'm happy to have people classify it as a literary thriller. To some degree, I didn't expect it to turn into a thriller while I was working on it. And it just sort of bent that way. My approach or my philosophy is just that sort of each page has to be at least as interesting as the previous page. And I guess somehow that turned it into a thriller. Is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't asked? I guess, you know, to a large extent, because Jeff is telling his life story or the story of his rise, you know, from his mid-late 20s to today, he's looking back on his life and there's a sense of fate there, a sense that there are certain forks. You know, if he hadn't saved this guy's life, what would have happened? You know, his life would have been completely different. And there's a series of choices he makes along the way, fates, forks, that when looked on retrospectively, I think feel to him like fate. And I just think that that kind of storytelling is central to the novel and is something that I'm deeply interested in is how do we make stories of our own lives and in so doing, maybe what do we airbrush? What do we leave out? And um, how much of a sense of inevitability do we lay on these things that when you look back, seem like they all added up to this moment? That, that kind of thing to me is central to the book because Jeff wants to retain a sense of his own goodness and I think it's fairly clear that he is unable to or chooses not to acknowledge any of his own privilege. 
along the way. And I, I think that makes him a fascinating character and not unlike many of us. Well, Antoine Wilson, the book is Mouth to Mouth. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Antoine Wilson, author of the book Mouth to Mouth, which was published by Avid Reader Press. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.